This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Now, you might notice a bit of a theme in recent episodes of kind of focusing on soil biology. It's such a fascinating area of soil health because of how complex it is and how much we collectively still have yet to learn about what's happening beneath the soil surface. Now, as with any biological system, there's going to be good microbes and there's also going to be harmful microbes to crop health. Today, we'll talk about some of the soil-borne pathogens that are impacting crops with a special focus on pulse crops, so peas, chickpeas, and lentils. We have on the show Dr. Audrey Kalisle, plant pathologist at the North Dakota State University Williston Research Extension Center. Audrey's research focuses on common crops in the region, which is pretty dry in that area, so crops like spring wheat, durum, canola, and those pulse crops I mentioned. Most of her work is in looking at soil-borne diseases. Even if you don't have pulses in your rotation, you'll still want to listen to this episode, I think, to understand how soil-borne pathogens of any crop can grow, spread, and cause economic damage. Audrey didn't always set out to study diseases, though. In fact, her PhD work focused on the beneficial nitrogen-fixing type of bacteria. It also explains how she found a particular interest in pulse crops. During my PhD, I, I studied rhizobia, so symbiotic bacteria that form nodules on our pulse crops, right, along with other legumes. And so I've always had an interest in that. I think the nitrogen fixation, the natural nitrogen that we can take advantage of is going to help us address a lot of our nitrogen issues in agriculture. So our runoff, now our soil acidification, you know, high cost. So essentially this free nitrogen that we're getting from nitrogen fixation, it has a lot of areas uh, that it can target in both soil health, breaking up disease cycles in some crops, but also, you know, environmental sustainability of agriculture. So I just think it's really interesting. There's there's a lot going on in the nitrogen fixation realm and, and understanding how maybe we could take advantage of that in non-legume crops. But uh, that's kind of where my interest started but when I came to Williston, that was really abundantly clear that the root rots were a concern for farmers. So, you know, based on the questions that I was getting and the answers I wasn't able to find, that kind of helped me target and focus my research on a high area of need. As she said, these diseases in pulse crops are a high area of need locally, but pulse crops are also widely grown in a lot of places, especially peas. And with benefits like fixing nitrogen, requiring very low inputs, and a growing demand for protein alternatives, they might be worth considering in more rotations. Peas are pretty widespread across the state. They can grow in a variety of climates, and I think in general, they're just easier to grow than lentils. Lentils have a long history in the northwest part of the state. Williams County is the top lentil producer and you add Divide County in there just north of us, that's the majority of the lentils in the state. And their growth habit is much lower to the ground. And so 
they can be a bit of a headache to harvest. So if I had to guess why they're not as widespread across the state as the peas, that might be one of them. Chickpeas, they are extremely indeterminate. They tend to not want to flower and set seed and and go to those reproductive growth stages until they're stressed, typically by moisture. And so if they're grown in an area where there's just abundant rainfall, you know, going into that late July, August time period, they'll just continue to grow rather than going into the maturity that you need to harvest them. So the chickpea definitely has kind of a regional area where it's going to be better suited. Now, we're going to get into the soil-borne diseases, really the topic of the show here in just a minute. But there's one more added benefit I want to make sure we mention to a pulse crop like a pea, for example, that relates directly to the soil health journey. They're often harvested early, leaving plenty of time to get a cover crop established in the late summer and fall. Yeah, so in some years, we're, we're harvesting the peas end of July. So if you're able to get in there, you know, immediately following harvest, you do have a longer growing window. So yeah, following a pea could be an opportunity for a cover crop. Well, I hope you find that background on pulse crops interesting. But as I said, today's episode is more about soil-borne pathogens than it is about necessarily the benefits of pulse crops. And I thought Audrey had a pretty interesting take on how we should think about pathogens in the context of soil health. I think there's a lot of natural intersection between the concept of soil health and disease management. You know, you think about a healthy soil having this robust microbial ecosystem. And of course, in a robust ecosystem, you've got a natural balance of what's present in the soil. It's not dominated by necessarily any one thing. So I think the idea is that a healthy soil should not be supporting a huge pathogen population. Now, whether that's true or not is an open question. I would expect it would be pathogen specific. One soil health practice that's also a disease management practice is diversifying your rotation. But for some soil-borne diseases, even that's not enough. Farmers are increasingly having to extend those rotations out longer and longer. You know, when they were introduced, the pulse crops, and in this case, primarily peas and lentils in the northwest part of North Dakota, they were a huge economic boon, you know, high prices. And if you're rotating it with the small grains, you get a boost in productivity from your small grains. So there wasn't a strong understanding of what kind of diseases were going to be impacting those crops, particularly below ground. You see a lot of the understanding of all oh, these, there are these foliar pathogens. And so you got to rotate, you know, every two, three years to allow that residue to break down. So you, you aren't dealing with these foliar pathogens, but there's not a lot of information about what's below ground. And so you know, one thing that we now understand is that these pathogens that are affecting peas are also affecting lentils. In particular, uh, one pathogen called Aphanomyces eutyches, it causes Aphanomyces root rot. So you might be thinking, I have a good crop rotation. You know, I'm going peas, wheat, lentils, wheat. I'm giving a break, a four-year rotation for your lentils, but that's actually not the case for this particular pathogen. So this is a good example of, on paper, this looks like a rotation, but because of the particularities of this one pathogen, that's not actually a sufficient rotation. So over time, the presence of these soil-borne pathogens continued building, and pulse crops are especially susceptible because they tend to stress easily in periods of too much moisture. 
They don't like wet feet, as some will say. This high organic matter soil, we're talking about a soil that doesn't drain well, right? It's holding moisture. The plant roots are sitting wet. And that's something that these crops adapted to semi-arid growing regions don't like. So it results in plant stress. The plant stress makes it more susceptible to these root pathogens. Additionally, this one pathogen, this Aphanomyces eutaches, it's called an omycete, otherwise referred to as a water mold, and it actually produces swimming spores. So the, a wet, saturated soil will be allowing this pathogen to spread and swim around. So that's one reason why it tends to really explode and become a big issue in those particular environments. So take it back to our environment. Why is it becoming an issue? Well, every year you cultivate you know, the pea or the lentil, you're giving that pathogen an opportunity to reproduce and the population to grow. This particular pathogen produces oospores. These are the survival structure. You can think of it as the seed of the pathogen. And it has a really thick wall. It's highly protective and winter is not going to kill it. In fact, it can live 10 years or more. These spores are viable. So if you're practicing short rotations, you can think of that population of the pathogen growing, 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 and never really going down. So some other researchers have found that even where peas and lentils have not been cropped previously, they can find Aphanomyces eutaches. So I would approach it with the idea that the pathogen is there at very low levels. What you're doing with really short rotations is rapidly increasing the amount of the pathogen in your soil. A longer rotation is stretching it out. And yeah, maybe you're, you're getting some of those oospores along the lay, right? You're not having 100% survival of all the oospores for exactly 10 years, right? It's an average. So yeah, absolutely. You're getting some losing viability over time. So essentially, as much as you can stretch those rotations out with these crops, it's a good idea to do that. So the strategy is here to slowly deplete these viable spores in the soil over time. And researchers are starting to find ways to actually measure this so we can quantify this risk as opposed to just guessing how much time might be enough. And we talked about this on a recent episode of the Growing Pulse Crops podcast, which Audrey actually produces and I host. So make sure you check that one out. With these new ways of measuring the soil pathogens, it'll open up the door to try to find economic thresholds for these diseases. Right. Yeah. I think threshold is a good term to use. Um, our entomologists have economic thresholds and they put a ton of research into generating those. And unfortunately, we don't have kind of an economic threshold yet. Maybe that's something that will be coming in the future. But yeah, you're, you're keeping it at a manageable level. We know Aphanomyces eutaches is native in our soils. It, it's in there. It's just that it reaches a level where there's just too much of the pathogen and the crop can't compete and then you're seeing yield loss. And yield loss isn't the only negative outcome you're going to notice if you have a problem with a root rot like a phanomyces. Right. So when it's really bad, the plants will actually die early in the season. So, you know, they might come up, look good. And if there's severe disease, they can get infected right at emergence and they can die and you'll end up with bare spots in your field. So that if it's severe and you have the environmental conditions, right, the wet conditions in spring, you can see that. When it's less severe, what you'll start to see is around flowering, pod fill, 
you'll start to see yellowing patches in your field. They typically correspond to where water moves through your field. So we usually see low-lying areas and then going up the hillsides, but also where you have compaction because, again, that's plant stress. And so field edges. You'll also see some yellowing above ground and field edges, but that will be later in the season that you'll see those above ground symptoms. If you want to know if it's there in the absence of these above ground symptoms, you have to dig the roots. So which crops specifically do we need to be concerned about when it comes to phantomyces? Audrey says not all pulse crops are susceptible, but some non-pulses like alfalfa are. So the Aphanomyces eutyches, it's, it's attacking a specific group of these legume crops, dry bean, peas, lentils. It doesn't cause severe disease on chickpeas. So chickpeas are an option there for rotation. And there are some resistant varieties of faba bean. And so if you're you know, annually cropping, those would be the, the primary things I would think about. Typically, we're not seeing a rotation of the alfalfa with a pea lentil dry bean, but if there is, I would pay attention to a phantomyces. It can also cause disease on alfalfa and some wild weeds. Fusarium root rot, on the other hand, we don't have a good handle, <laughs> frankly, on you know what crops are going to be susceptible to exactly what fusarium species. That is an active area of research. And even within a species these pathogens are extremely genetically diverse. So you take Fusarium oxysperum, for example. Some Fusarium oxysperum don't cause any disease at all. They're just living in the soil, minding their own business. And then there's other Fusarium, Fusarium oxysperum, Formis specialis pisi, and that happens to cause wilt on pea. And there's another Formis specialis that causes disease on something else. And they're all Fusarium oxysperum. <laughs> So it's actually, the fusaria are quite confusing. And I think talking about them maybe cause more confusion than actually helps <laughs> if we don't have concrete advice to provide. It just scares you. It's not helpful. But, you know, we're, we're researching it. We're working on it. Likely, there's a degree of host specificity with the fusaria as well. It's just figuring out exactly what risk you're at with what rotation. That That's actually a quite complicated question. I would try to just approach it with the idea that as diverse as you can be with plant groups, so, you know, legume, small grain or, or monocot, right? And then maybe your oil seeds and then whatever, maybe something else you can put in there for a year and trying to rotate those plant families and crop types. This approach of rotating over time is clearly the fundamental management strategy, but it still seems like we're just hoping that they go away over time. I wondered if there's anything else growers can do to manage these root rots. Well, there's all sorts of root rots and things that cause, you know, these seed rots and damping off and all these kind of soil-borne root diseases. And your management is going to need to be tailored to the type of disease that you have. In the case of Aphanomyces eutyches, you know, there's been efforts to breed for genetic resistance, but we do not have genetically resistant varieties yet. Seed treatments only protect early in the season when that seed treatment product, that fungicide is actually present in the plant, right? Eventually the fungicide isn't there anymore and whatever protection you did have is gone. And so we typically see, you know, a pretty variable yield response to seed treatment for aphanomyces. And there's really only one product that's labeled for that particular pathogen. There are seed treatments for say your fusarium, your rhizoctonia, your pythium, and the efficacy of those products depends on when these pathogens are attacking the root. So your seed treatments for pythium, for example, 
this particular pathogen, also an oomycete, likes it cold and damp, and it really tends to attack the seed in the ground and then that recently germinated seedling. So that's a perfect opportunity to protect the crop with the seed treatment, right? It's going to be effective for that. Rhizoctonia can also cause some of those issues. So you'll see a lot of seed treatments. If you look at the disease management guide by NDSU, they'll put there what types of pathogens that seed treatment is labeled for. And so then you can get an idea of what you're getting protection against. I would particularly look for that pythium in the case of the pulse crops. Um, but then these diseases that can affect season long, the aphanomyces and fusarium, these types of root rots, you can still get disease later. And so don't expect a seed treatment product to be a cure. Now, since the exact management approach is going to change from disease to disease, Audrey says it's really important to understand the disease triangle. I think the disease triangle is an important concept to understand because I think we tend to get really afraid that disease is going to occur. And I can understand that, right? There's a lot of different things you might hear about. And the first thing on that side is, does this disease even occur in my area, right? So, you know, we see a lot of issues with with white mold and soybean. We know it's a big problem, but soybean growers in my area, we get so little precipitation that this particular pathogen really just can't get going most of the time. You know, it relies upon wet soil. So you can read about soybean, right? These are all the different diseases that can affect soybean, for example. And it can be easy to feel overwhelmed to have to manage all that. But in all likelihood, there's maybe only one or two that are really important in your area. So first off, it's like, what are the big problems? And and not even in, in your region, but also your field. You know, maybe your rotation or something makes it so you're not at risk for X. So we've got presence of the pathogen. That's that's the first leg of your disease triangle. Is this thing even here? And then we have a susceptible host. And the definition of a susceptible host is going to change for every single pathogen. So for fusarium head blight, that's a fusarium pathogen, which attacks our small grains and corn. But it's not going to go to a soybean or a pea or lunch. It just won't right? That's not a susceptible host. And then we have genetically resistant varieties of hard red spring wheat. So we can modify our host to avoid disease because you take out any one of these legs of the disease triangle and you don't get disease. And the third thing that we have zero control over is weather. You know, many of the pathogens we're dealing with, they like moisture. Foliar pathogens, they like a wet, humid canopy. Soil-borne pathogens, right? So moisture in the soil, but not always. Um, a soybean cyst nematode doesn't need moisture to attack a soybean. Fusarium can cause disease in the absence of moisture. So you need to know what's the environment that that pathogen is going to cause disease in. And that will help explain to you why you're seeing disease some years and not others, and it will kind of break down the mystery um, and hopefully some of the fear. Now, one last example that Audrey mentioned that's probably relevant to a lot of farmers who listen to this show is about planting corn into rye and the disease susceptibility that can go along with that. Something we we briefly talked about, and this is not an area of my research, but there's a group researching the um, effects of following corn after cereal rye. And, you know, you grow the cereal rye in the fall and you terminate it and then you plant the corn into that. And they'd been seeing a lot of issues with yield loss. And they kind of figured out that it's due to the soil pathogen pythium. And that when they terminated the rye, the pythium were 
happy feeding on these rye roots and then the corn germinates in that and the pythium attacks the corn. So if you think about our plant group concept again, right, our corn is kind of in the same plant group as a rye. So in terms of a choice for a cover crop for another monocot is probably not going to be a good choice. This group compared using the, the rye to camelina. And they didn't see the same issues with the camelina. So it was, you know, the pythium, again, lots of species can infect lots of crops, but there was that specificity in that case where it was causing an issue uh, in the rye and, and it wasn't an issue when you grew the corn following camelina. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Audrey Kalau for being on the show. If this stuff interests you and or if you're at all interested in pulses, I highly recommend you subscribe to the Growing Pulse Crops podcast. Audrey does a fantastic job of putting together that content, and I have a lot of fun hosting it. You can find that on any podcast player or over at growingpulsecrops.com. Thanks as well to the sponsors of Soil Sense, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Harvest Dry Bean Association, the North Dakota Barley Council, and Anheuser-Busch. If you're getting value from this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen, and make sure you share your favorite episodes on Twitter using the hashtag SoilSense. We'll be back with another great episode next week.